All right, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 12 through 20, we will be finishing chapter 6 and finishing the, the first major section, the first half, really, of, of the letter that deals with the report from Chloe's household. So, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now if you're following with the ESV, you probably don't have that little phrase there that says, and in your spirit, right, at the end of verse 20, yeah. Textual differences. (laughs) So last week we looked at the third of four uh, issues that uh, were brought to Paul's attention from Chloe's household. Again, um, Paul takes the first half of this letter and uses the first half of this letter to deal with those issues that were brought to him from the people of Chloe's household. And in uh, last week, again, looking at verses 1 through 11, the issue there was you had believers in the church who were disputing with one another over small, trivial matters. And instead of dealing with those matters in the church, they took each other to court outside of the church to secular courts to unrighteous judges. Now, among other things, this issue, like the one raised in chapter 5 over um, that issue of sexual immorality in the church, highlighted a breakdown in the area of church discipline. In other words, the church was not doing what the church should be doing. In the case of chapter 5, the church was not dealing with a sin that was running rampant in their church. And in chapter 6, the first half, the church was not doing what it should have been doing, which was adjudicating between this uh, issue between these two members in the church. So a bad situation, uh, so bad was the situation in uh, this section that Paul says, uh, is it so that there is not a wise man among you who is able to judge? In other words, he's like, are you so incapable of judging matters between small matters between believers in your own church. Is there no one among you that can do that task? And he goes on to show the Corinthians that the victory is not won in the courtroom. In fact, if you're already taking your brother to court over a small matter, you have lost. You have lost. It is an utter failure to you. It is worth, it is better to let these small matters go rather than take them to court. 
If you can't deal with them in the church, it is better to let those small, trivial issues between believers go. You know, that's what he says, right? Rather you, why don't you rather suffer wrong? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Why do you take your, your, your issues and bring them before unrighteous judges? And then Paul closes that section in verses 9 through 11 by appealing to the true character of Christians. By saying first that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, thus you should not bring uh, internal church matters to the unrighteous in the world. Because they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You are, because you are believers. They are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You will be able to judge, and they are not able to judge. But then he goes on and says, also, your behavior in Corinth was resembling the unrighteous of the world rather than that of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You're looking more like the world than you are your Savior. And that's why he says, do you not know that if the people who continue to practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God? But then he closes by reminding them that, that, that such were some of you. Such were some of you. You used to be that way. You used to be unrighteous at one time, but now you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. So now he's like, basically by saying that, it's like, now start acting like it. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified, now start acting like you're washed, sanctified, and justified. Stop acting like the unwashed, the unsanctified, and the unjustified of the world. And now, as we go into our passage this morning, verses 12 through 20, like I said earlier, this closes out the first half of the letter by dealing with the fourth and the final issue on Chloe's report. And verses 9 through 11 that we saw last week kind of flow into and naturally lead into what we see in verses 12 through 20 as we see more evidence that the Corinthians were acting more like their old selves than their new selves. They were acting more like the world than those who had been washed and sanctified and justified. Now, Paul is dealing with another case in this, in this passage here, with another case of sexual immorality, but instead of something occurring in the church, it was happening by church members outside of the church. And what you have here were men in the church were having sexual relations with prostitutes is what was going on here. Now, there's some speculation as to exactly what that meant. Uh, perhaps some Corinthian believers were engaging in some pagan rituals outside of the church life and, and pagan rituals that involved uh, kind of a sexual relationships with um, prostitutes or whatever. But the point is, you had men in the church engaging in sexual relationships with prostitutes outside of the church. And here Paul will, in no uncertain terms, disabuse the Corinthians of this idea by telling them that they are not their own. You don't, you know, you don't in a sense, you don't own yourself, right? You, you, you are bought, that's what he says, you are bought at a price when he, when, he's, uh, when he goes on there. And that price, of course, is the blood of Christ, as we will see. So first, in verses 12 through 14, Paul is going to tell the Corinthians that our bodies, or your bodies, our bodies together, are not meant for sexual immorality. And he begins this passage by twice saying something that is believed to be a slogan or a saying that was popular 
with the people in the city of Corinth where he says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So that phrase there, all things are lawful for me, that's the phrase that is believed by many scholars to be a slogan. Now, if you have an ESV, it might even be in quotes. Is it in quotes? No? Um, some, some ESV translations have it in quotes. Oh, it is in quotes. Okay. Let's see. Because uh, the ESV, the NIV, and the Christian Standard Bible, they place that phrase in quotes. Now, okay, I've mentioned, I may have mentioned this in previous contexts before. Quotation marks don't appear in the Greek. Okay, so if your English Bible has quotation marks, that is the translators putting them in there to aid in the reading and understanding of the Scriptures. Now, unless they're actually like later on in the passage where, um, what is it, verse 16, where he says, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. You might have quotation marks around that. That is a direct quotation of Scripture. So the New King James will put those in quotes because it's, it's, a, it's a direct quotation of Scripture and it'll have it in a different font and maybe italicized in a different way. But when you see quotation marks, they're not in the original. So it's, it's the translators and the interpreters' best guesses as to what is being quoted, something that's being quoted or not. And there's going to be a couple of things in this passage that come into, that, into play with that. There's another one that you will see um, in verse 13. Again, if you have an ESV, you might have food for the stomach and stomach for food, and then that's in quotes, right? We'll get to that. And there's probably another phrase that might have been a slogan that's not in quotes in the ESV. So I, I say that because this passage has a lot of these types of phrases in it, and it's... it's depending on how you interpret it, if they're quotes, if they're slogans from the Corinthian culture, it may or may not make it easier to interpret this passage. But we'll get to them in time when we get to those. So anyway, food for the stomach, or all things are lawful for me. That is, again, believed to be some kind of slogan or saying that was popular in Corinth. So what the Corinthians are seen as saying when they say all things are lawful for me they're basically saying everything's permissible. I can do whatever I want. All things are permissible to me. Now, this is being put forth as a justification for their behavior. In other words, it's like, all things are lawful for me, therefore, I can go have sex with a prostitute. <laughs> because it's, I, I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful for me. It doesn't matter what I do, because everything is permissible. Put another way, the freedom I have in Christ, in a sense, is a freedom to sin. That's kind of the mindset that the Corinthians are adopting here. And we noted this in previous lessons, that the Corinthians were exhibiting sort of an antinomian or anti-law point of view. They were sort of like, I've got the salvation, I, you know, I, I, I made my profession of faith, I went down the aisle, I gave my life to Christ at church camp or whatever. Now I can do whatever I want. Because Christ forgives me, I can do whatever I want. All things are permissible. It is an attitude of licentiousness. Not just license, but licentiousness, which is I can do whatever. 
And Paul continues, or he counters, I should say, in verse 12 by saying, yeah, all things may be permissible, but they're not all helpful. (laughs) Right? All things may be permissible, but some things can be enslaving to you. Now, he's not so much denying the slogan as he is the application of it. Okay? He's not denying the slogan so much as the application of it. Because we do have freedom in Christ, right? It's a great spot for an amen. We do have freedom in Christ, right? All right. Okay. That was a little weak, but it was better than nothing. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. We do have freedom in Christ. You don't have to say it again a third time. But it is not a freedom to sin. It is not a freedom to sin. We are free... From the law, we are free from being under the law because the law in Christ, because we are in Christ and we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. And many aspects of the Mosaic law have been fulfilled in Christ, but we are still required to walk in newness of life. We are still required to live as slaves to righteousness. Paul belabored that in Romans 6, and we, when we looked at Romans 6. You are not free to do whatever you want. You are free from sin. You are free from being in the law. But that freedom now means you are free to be a slave to righteousness. You are free to walk in newness of life. You are free to walk as Christ would walk. So even things which are not inherently sinful can still prove to be unprofitable or even enslaving to the Christian. So that's why Paul says, yeah, all things may be permissible, but you don't have freedom to sin. All things may be permissible, but you, some things are not helpful. Some things are enslaving to you. So he kind of hits them right off the bat there in verse 12. And then he goes on as we see what appears to be another Corinthian slogan or saying in verses 13 and 14. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Now here, there's another. this is another one of those things where there's a debate where the slogan or the saying ends. Again, if you have an ESV, the quote ends with, and the stomach for food. So it would be food for the stomach and the stomach for food, end quote. Uh, of course, New King James doesn't have any quotations at all, so it's, you're kind of left to interpret that on your own. Now another translation, the Christian Standard Bible, has a slogan ending with, and God will destroy them both, or God will destroy both it and them. So in other words, a quotation would begin... Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them, end quote. And I kind of persuaded that this is the correct slogan there. So if there is a slogan in verse 13, it is food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. So Paul quotes another saying and begins to refute it when he says, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And again, in verse 13, this saying or slogan reveals just how much the Corinthian church was still under the influence of Greek philosophy. Now, I've mentioned this many times before throughout our study in 1 Corinthians, that 
uh, but in Greek thought, the physical or the material world was seen as lesser or evil, something to be put off, something to, to get rid of, something to endure until you die, and then the spirit is released from the prison house of the body in order to be with the gods or whatever. So the body, evil, it doesn't matter what you do in the body. Heaven to the Greek mind was to be free of the body. Now, some philosophers even taught that the soul was, like I said, trapped in the body and longed to be free. That was Plato. Plato was very much into that. Socrates, of course, any, everything we know about Socrates we get from Plato. So Socrates taught that the soul was trapped in the body. So eating, drinking, sex are just biological. So when the Corinthians say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, it's a way of saying it's the body so it doesn't matter. Whatever you do to the body, it doesn't matter. It's, they're just bodily functions. It's just natural. It's just biology. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Now, just to show you how much, you know, to, to kind of bring the saying, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? I mean, that's, has this idea really left us that it's just natural, that it's just biology, No, no. Because here you have, today, people will excuse all kinds of sexual perversity and just say, it's natural. That's my natural inclination. It's the way God made me. God wouldn't, you know, God loves me and he wouldn't make, if he wouldn't make me this way, if he didn't want me to live out my feelings in this way, right? It's just natural. And the Corinthian slogan continues by saying, God will destroy both it, that is the stomach, and food. So it doesn't matter what we do again with the body because God is going to destroy them both. Do whatever you want with your body because when it's all said and done, the body's going to be done, food's going to be done, the stomach's going to be done. God will destroy both food and the stomach and the body and we'll just live as pure disembodied spirits. Now, of course, as we saw even yesterday morning during our men's Bible study, the notion that the body doesn't matter, only the soul matters, that's pagan. That's not Christian. That is a pagan idea that's as old as Satan in the garden. <laughs> okay? I mean, you could probably take it as far back as Satan in the garden. It's an old idea that the body doesn't matter, that only the soul matters. And Paul says as much when he says, Look, the body is not for sexual immorality. The body does matter. (laughs) The body does matter. It is not for the sexual immorality. It is for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. He's going to expand on this a little later, but here he introduces the thought that your body, far from not mattering, actually belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord's. The body matters so much that God physically raised His Son, Jesus Christ, from the grave, right? Jesus Christ, when He was resurrected, wasn't a disembodied spirit. And to prove that He wasn't a disembodied spirit, when He met with the disciples, what did He do? He ate, right? You know, you don't eat if you don't have a body, right? He even told, he even told what did He tell Thomas to do? Put your finger in my side, touch the hole in my hand. I have a body. <laughs> it is resurrected. It is not a body like your body, but it is a body. 
And Paul says not only did God raise Christ from the dead, but He's going to raise our bodies as well. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So the idea that the body doesn't matter needs to be completely jettisoned, needs to be cast out. It needs to be excised from our brains. Because God made us to be a body-soul union. And our future is not to be disembodied spirits floating on a cloud somewhere in heaven. Our, our future is to be renewed souls living in glorified bodies. When, when you see that the, at the end of day, you know, at the end of the age, when Christ returns and the dead are raised, we are raised in glorified bodies, just like his. We will have a body just like his, says Philippians 3. Okay. So that was our bodies are not for sexual immorality. Now in verses 15 through 17, we see our bodies are joined to Christ. So expanding on his thought from the second half of verse 13, where he says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, Paul says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. (laughs) What do you think the answer is? Don't look at the book. What do you think the answer is? Absolutely not, right. Don't look at the book. (laughs) Okay, you can look at the book now. Now again here, Paul uses that rhetorical phrase, do you not know? He's going to use it two more times. In other words, you do know this. You know this because I taught you this when I was here in Corinth. And when I was here, as we saw in Acts 18, 18 months, I was here a year and a half with you. Now Paul here is speaking to them as their spiritual father. We saw this back in chapter 4. He is chastising them, but he's chastising them in love, just as you would to your kid. Didn't I tell you this? To which the kid says, I don't know. (laughs) Didn't I tell you not to do that? Yes, yeah, you told me, Dad. You told me not to do that. Why'd you do it? I don't know. (laughs) Do you not know? Do you not know? You ought to know this, what I'm about to tell you. That's what he's saying. And and what he's about to tell him is like, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? And when he says that, this is a sort of a bedrock cardinal truth of our faith, which is our union with Christ. It is a mysterious union. It is a spiritual union. It is a union in which we are joined by the Holy Spirit through faith to Christ. And that's how all of the benefits of our salvation are sort of administered to us through this union with Christ. Paul, Paul is following a similar line of thought that he engaged in in Romans 6. So keep your finger here and just flip back over to Romans 6. In Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue? Now, this again, this is going based on something that he closes chapter 5 with, where he says um, in verse 20 of chapter 5, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So as our sin grows, God's grace over, 
grows. Okay? It grows over it to cover our sin. So then Paul here says, and what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, you know I, I've mentioned this before. It's like, you know, we like to sin. God likes to show grace. So shall we just continue in sin that grace may abound? And again here, Paul uses that same thing where he said earlier, right? Certainly not. Just as you wouldn't join the members of Christ to a harlot, you won't continue in sin so that grace may abound. Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Or, and here we go, do you not know? Do you not know that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So this is a great passage that talks about our union with Christ. And it talks about our union with Christ through this, this analogy of being baptized into Christ. So you are immersed, you are dipped, you are, you are submerged, if you will, into Christ so that His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. And all of these things. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. And as such, because we are united with Christ, as Paul will say here in Romans 6, you, sh- you have died to sin because He died to sin. And because you have died to sin, you shall not continue to walk any longer in it because you have died to it. You can flip back to 1 Corinthians. So we are immersed into or with Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are united to Him. In Galatians 3.27, Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Again, that idea, as you are immersed and united to Christ, you, in a sense, put Him on. It's like a suit. You put it on and it's, it's His righteousness. It's His holiness. It's His perfection that guards and covers you. As Paul will say in Romans 13, right? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The doctrine of union with Christ is illustrated by calling us members of Christ. We are His body. He is the head. We are His members. Now the church as a whole is what? The body of Christ, right? The church as a whole is the body of Christ, and individual Christians then are members of His body. That's exactly what Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians 12-27 when he starts talking about the spiritual gifts. The church is the body of Christ, and each one of you are members thereof. Now here Paul uses the image of being members of Christ to show the Corinthians how absurd how unthinkable it is to join the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot or a prostitute. And the unthinkability of this notion is expressed by that phrase, certainly not. This was Paul's favorite phrase in Romans. It is the strongest negation that Paul can think of. May it never be. May it never come to existence. God forbid, I think the King James says. God forbid. Uh, I don't know what ESV says. What? Never? Okay. May it never be. Right? Certainly not. No, you wouldn't do that. It's unthinkable. It is unthinkable. Another way this notion of joining the members of Christ with a harlot is unthinkable is due to the nature of the sexual act as Paul continues in verses 16 
and 17, where again he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to our harlot is one body with her? And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So rather than just saying, well, it's biology, right? It's just natural. It, uh, engaging in a sexual relationship with a harlot is to be one body with her. It is to join. It is to become a one flesh union with a prostitute. That's why he quotes from Genesis 2.24 when God created man and woman in the garden and, and, and uh, you know, instituted the, the, the covenant of marriage there. He says that a man shall leave his father and mother and join together with his wife and the two will become one flesh. God created sex to be a beautiful expression of the one flesh union between a husband and wife. However, since the fall, we have twisted and perverted and cheapened God's beautiful gift. Now, despite what your fallen mind or worldly philosophy teaches about sex, it doesn't alter God's original design. You could say it's natural all the live long day, but that doesn't change how God originally designed it to be in the beginning. So for a Christian to engage in sexual relations with a harlot is to join the body of Christ with the body of a harlot and thus make a one flesh union between Christ and a prostitute. That should be unthinkable, right? Jesus Christ would not have done that when He was living in this world in the flesh. We can't be one flesh with a harlot because He who joined us to the Lord is one spirit with Him. We are united to Christ. Now finally, in verses 18-20, through 20, we see that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So because far from being something that is harmless, sexual immorality, or that word porneia, we have saw that before, it's the word that Paul uses here, uh, it covers all kinds of sexual sin. Okay, not just, the relationship, not just having sex with a harlot, it covers all kinds of sexual sins here. And he says, sexual immorality actually has serious physical and spiritual ramifications. You can't just engage in this and not expect to have any kind of effect. That's, that's why Paul says to flee it, to run away, to not even engage with it. Don't even be in the same zip code of sexual immorality. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Sexual sin has a very strong lure, particularly among men, right? But also women, too. No one's immune. And just consider how in just 50 years ago, much of what is considered normal now was considered sin or you know, something not to be done or not even to be mentioned in public. Now, of course, our culture has all but abandoned any kind of normal sense of a sexual ethic. In fact, as long as it's between any number or combination of consenting adults, it doesn't matter, right? That's kind of the sexual morality that we see in the world today. As long as you have consenting adults, it doesn't matter how many or with whom or 
or what the combination of the partners are. And well, I was just going to say, I mean, we've got that right here. It's like, and we're chipping that away too. We're chipping away this idea of consenting adults away too, moving it down further and further down the, the line. Paul commands the Corinthians here to flee. Kind of reminds me of Joseph, right? With Mrs. Potiphar. And what was Mrs. Potiphar doing? She saw Joseph, that he was, he was ruddy and he was handsome, fine of form, right? And here's young Joseph in, in Potiphar's house and, and Mrs. Potiphar is saying, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. And he's like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. And one time she says, lie with me. And he, he gets up to leave and she grabs his coat and he leaves without his coat. That's how he fled sexual immorality. Now, of course, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, right? Because <laughs> then what happens to Joseph after that? Well, Mrs. Potiphar says, he tried to rape me, you know, and then he gets, you know, so Joseph got me too'd and then he got thrown into prison for it. Um, but Joseph's action when he was being lured by Mrs. Potiphar was to run, not walk away from that. He would not engage in that. He fled sexual immorality. Now here, in verse 18, the phrase which reads, every sin that a man does is outside the body has made scholars struggle. Now if you have an ESV or any other non-King James, New King James Version, um, they will add the word other. Right? Every other sin a man commits is outside the body. Um, the New King James doesn't. So that some, like I said, some translations add the word other for clarification, thus making a distinction between sexual sin and every other sin. But again, like I said, the problem is the Greek literally says every or all sin. So adding the word other is more of an interpretive stance than it is a translational stance. The, the, the translators are interpreting for you instead of translating literally what the text has there. Now if you say every sin that is outside the body doesn't make sense unless this phrase is also, I would say, a slogan or a saying that the Corinthian church had. This is an argument that some commentators make, and I find it compelling. This phrase here that um, every sin that a man does is outside the body. That, that phrase, I believe, is another slogan that the Corinthian church or that the Corinthian culture had. Okay. Now, given what we've seen so far, this seems very plausible. Because if you believe that every sin is outside the body then having sex with a harlot is not sin because you're sinning with the body. right? Their mentality that the body doesn't matter means that it's only sin if it's outside the body. It's only sin if I don't use my body for it. If I use my body for it, it doesn't matter because the body doesn't matter. But as we've seen thus far, Paul is making a very solid biblical and theological case that committing sexual immorality is a sin against your body. And Paul here saves his best argument for last in verses 19 through 20, where he says here, or do you not know, it's the third time he's used it now, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we are not even to entertain sexual immorality because our very bodies, the bodies that the Corinthian church thought were nothing, didn't matter, just biological, our bodies are temples. Not like in a weightlifting kind of, you know, my body's a temple, you know, kind of a thing. But our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And this is such a rich topic here, this idea of our bodies being temples, that just the idea of the temple itself. Uh, and we're not going to be able to do it justice here, but in other uh, contexts, we've said that the temple uh, is God's dwelling place. Right? It is God's dwelling place. When the, when the tabernacle was erected by the Israelites in the wilderness, it was so that God could dwell in their midst. It was so that God could be their covenant God you know, to fulfill that covenant promise where He says, I will be your God and you will be My people and I will dwell among you. And how do we know He's dwelling among them? Because the tabernacle was there. The temple then becomes a permanent tabernacle. The temple is God's dwelling place. And this temple motif in Scripture is meant to fulfill the heart of God's covenant with man to be our God and that we will be His people. In fact, back in chapter 3, verses 16-17, through 17, Paul talks about how you know, building on the foundation of Christ that the church is a temple. Where he says there in verse 16, do you not know that you, and that you is plural, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So he's talking about the church as the temple of God. And now he talks about believers as temples of God in in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. That's kind of an awesome thing, right? You know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is dwelling not just in your midst, He's dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul can say as such, we are not our own, we are God's holy possession. And to have sexual relations with a harlot is akin to having sex in the temple. Think about that, right? You know, I mean, I know there's a story, and I can't, I'm drawing a blank on who the, the people are. But there's a story in which there was somebody who had sex in the temple and then the priest comes in and maybe it was Phineas, right? Was that in, in, in the wilderness? They're having t- uh, sex in the tabernacle and Phineas comes and... Hophni and Phineas, yeah, okay. They were engaging, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's defiling the temple when they do that. When you do that, you are defiling the temple. You're having sex in the temple. And what Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians is anyone who defiles the temple will be destroyed. And they were destroyed. In fact, the word here for temple is the word naos, which, is, which talks about the holy place, the, the center of the temple, not the general temple grounds. It is the most holy place. And it would be unthinkable to defile the most holy place. In fact, so many rituals in the Jewish uh, religious tradition were such so that the priests would not defile intentionally or unintentionally by going into the holy place. 
And of course, where he goes on and says, moreover, we are not our own. God owns us. God owns us because He bought us. He redeemed us with the precious blood of His Son, as First Peter will say. Not with stones or precious metals, but with the precious blood of Christ, He bought you. And then in verse 20, we see the payoff of this passage. We are to glorify God in our bodies and our spirits. That is the payoff. That is what Paul is saying here. Don't do this because you are to glorify God with your body and your spirit. We glorify God by having our walk match our talk. By having our practice match our profession. We glorify God by being holy both in body and in spirit. We glorify God by recognizing uh, thankful obedience is how we show our love and gratitude to Christ. And the thrust of Paul's argument here is um, to argue from who we are in Christ to how we should now live in Christ. Who we are in Christ has, there, there's a purpose behind it. There is, there is, there is a payoff to it. And it, is, it should be reflected in how we, we live. So we'll close here. So the next time we're back in 1 Corinthians, though, will be, Lord willing, on April 3rd. 